could it be? Yes, it could. Something's coming, something good. If I can wait, something's coming. I don't know what it is, but it is gonna be great. With a click, with a shock, phone will jingle, door will knock, open the latch. Something's coming, don't know when, but it soon catch the moon, one-handed catch. Welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, January 28th, 2024. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His new book, Brain Teasers for Broadway Geniuses, is now available wherever finer books are sold. Peter also has columns at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Hello, Peter. Good morning. Hello. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. So, Michael, a couple of yes. days ago at 54 Below... Uh, you finally had the uh, the encore performance of Jerry Orbach's Broadway. So how did it go? Well, you know, there was the, uh, a couple of live performance blips, uh, glitches, um, as always happens. But I have to say, the we were almost completely sold out, and the audience seemed to adore it. And I guess that's the main the main thing we're going for, right? Um, so yeah, it was, uh, I would have to call it a big success. Um, so much so they asked us to do it again. Oh, nice. uh, <laughs> but um, but actually I thought, well, maybe at some point, but let's give it a little bit of a break. And instead, I'm, uh, they offered me the date of Thursday, March 7th at 7 p.m. So I'm going to do a reprise of my show called 54 Loves Cast Albums. Uh-huh. Oh, great. And, and I have to say, already I've got, um, I made a quick phone call and Charles Kirsch is going to be my co-host. Uh-huh. And I got Robbie Roselle ah. uh, to, you know, I thought if you're going to do a show about cast albums, yeah, <laughs> call absolutely. Robbie Roselle, because not only uh, was he a head honcho at one of the labels and, and is still uh, of a new label, mm. but he also performs. So you get two for the price of one. Um, and <laughs> and uh, now this is just in like a day, mind you. Uh, I've also got Gerard Alessandrini to be in the show. Nice. Oh, great. So uh, we're going to build on all that and see what we can get, but I'm sure it's going to be fun. Well, as it starts to gel, keep us in the loop. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. So uh, from 54 below, you went uh, one street up and over a few avenues <laughs> to get over to city center uh, where there is a little skit called once upon a mattress uh, at the encore series playing right now. So tell us about this. What did you think of it? I it's been a while since I've had such incredibly mixed feelings about a show, um, although mostly very, very positive. But uh, when I mention the negative, maybe you'll understand why uh, this show 
which I have always loved, has music by Mary Rogers, lyrics by Marshall Barrer, and a book by Jay Thompson, Dean Fuller, and Marshall Barrer. They're all three credited with the book. Um, I love the show. It had a wonderful run on Broadway, apparently at five different theaters. <laughs> It moved four times during its run. Uh, on, one time for 12 days. Yes, you mentioned that. Yes. <laughs> it's incredible when you, you know, I mean, nowadays, the, the costs of moving alone are, are just so prohibitive that that would never, ever happen. Um, and it didn't run that long, but in the period that it ran, it played in five different theaters. Um so, and then there were two TV adaptations, one in 1964 and one in 1972, uh, both starring Carol Burnett, the brilliant original star of the Broadway production. And there were some other repeats um, from the original production in both uh, of the TV versions, uh, notably Jane White and um, uh, Jack Guilford. Uh, so, and then there were... Uh, different cast members for for some of the other roles um and that that was um the main history of mattress for a while but then sarah jessica parker starred in a very very unfortunate broadway revival um that i i don't think was primarily her fault i think it was the fault of the director gerald gutierrez who just was a great director for some things, but did not seem to have any affinity for that kind of a show. And so that was a tremendous flop. Uh, and then there was a decent, uh, more than decent TV version of Mattress with Tracy Ullman and with Cal Burnett now in the role of the queen. Um, and that's pretty much where we stood now. Uh, people were very excited when they heard that Encores was going to do the show with Sutton Foster. Uh, and uh, uh, a really great <laughs> supporting cast as well. Um, Sutton, as I have said, I, I have also had very mixed feelings about her. I think she has been wonderful when she has been well cast in roles and less than wonderful when she has been miscast, which has happened on more than one occasion. But here, I, I, I felt in advance that this would be a very, very good role for her indeed uh it turned out to be i think um that she was terrific in it and the audience obviously adored her um so i i think that that was a very smart idea that turned out to be as good as it sounded um and I'll, i have lots more good to say but first let me get the the bad out of the way jenny gersten who um uh is I can't find her exact title, but she's one of the um, head honchos of the musical theater programming at City Center. She made a point during the talk back after yesterday's show that uh, about all the lady power in this production, because first of all, you have Mary Rogers, uh, who composed the score, very, you know, uh, unusual to have a, a woman writing the music for a musical, especially in 1959. Um, then we have Lauren Lataro choreographing this show, Mary Mitchell Campbell as music director, and Lear de Bessonet as director. Uh, so she made a point about the lady power, and then I thought, well, um, 
is that why you rewrote the book? Because the book uh, was written by three men. And uh, I'm sorry, I don't think there's really anything wrong with the original book by Jay Thompson, mm-hmm. Dean Fuller, and Marshall Barrer. Mm-hmm. Um, only maybe a couple of dated references. There's a... Um, a joke at the beginning that that makes fun of a show that's sort of like the $64,000 question, uh, a game show. You know, I mean, that might have been tweaked a little bit uh, and a few references here and there, but really, really very few. I, I don't think there's anything terribly wrong with the original book, but they felt they had to bring someone in to rewrite it. And so they brought in Amy Sherman Palladino. Who uh, whose claim to fame is the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And let me say right at the start, some of the new jokes were very funny, but others were not. Um, several laid an egg. And then there were just um, changes to the plot that seemed completely unnecessary and and not improvements. Uh, one, one thing I will give her is uh, she did something very smart. She uh, combined the roles of the jester and the minstrel um, separately, two separate roles. She combined them into one role played by J. Harrison Gee. And uh, he was called, so, all right, well, they combined the role. So what, what were they going to call him? Well, I think they decided probably not to call him a minstrel because he is a black performer. <laughs> um, so instead they called him the jester and that was fine, except that he didn't really do anything during the show that, that a jester would do. He wasn't playing jokes and telling funny stories and things like that. Whereas the fellow who played the wizard, Francis Jew, uh, a running joke was that he kept um, doing these silly little magic tricks. So uh, that's, that's something they might have given a little more attention to when they were doing the rewrite. Uh, anyway, uh, that was a good idea, but I, I did not like all these other changes. I'll, I'll mention some of them now. Uh, let's say, okay, um, starting almost right at the beginning, there's a, a phrase that is spoken and sung uh, at one point or another, and the phrase is, Throughout the land, no one may wed till Dauntless shares his marriage bed. That's the original version. Anything wrong with that? No. But now it's throughout the land, no one may wed till Dauntless to the altars led. And it's like, why did they change that? Is it too dirty to say marriage bed? Mm. (laughs) Is there something about a man sharing his marriage bed that they think is sexist. I don't know. Um, I can't figure it out. Um, Let's see. Uh, Oh, one big plot point in the original and always gets laughs is that the queen is unnaturally attracted to her son, Dauntless. Um, She even has a line at one point where she's like hugging him and she says, Oh my God, if I were only 30 years younger, well, that's all gone now, uh, and the, yeah. re- replaced to the joke with the joke of that she just can't stop talking, uh, which was also true in the original. Uh, but I don't know why anybody felt the need to do that. Um, little, um, the, uh, there was a fart joke inserted uh, at one point. Yeah, I don't think we need a fart joke. Um, uh, and uh, and several ana- anachronistic jokes, uh, just to get laughs by mentioning something that, you know, of course, would not have been 
existing in 1392. Uh, there's a little of that in the original show, but they really pretty much avoid it. Uh, but they added a lot of more of those anachronisms here. Um, some of the music was uh, not as clean as it could be. There's that beautiful wonderful lyric by Marshall Barrer, who really was one of the greats and uh, apparently somewhat difficult offstage. Uh, and maybe that's why he didn't uh, become even more famous than he is. Um, but the, the lyric is, um, uh, the story is that Lady Larkin uh, really wants to get married to Sir Harry because she's pregnant. And in those days, you really had to be, you know, if you were pregnant, you really should be married. Uh, so she sings to Harry, <clears throat> excuse me, my time is at a premium for soon the world will see me a maternal bride to be. Uh, so there's that wonderful interior rhyme of premium and semium maternal bride to be. But Nikki Renee Daniels sang it as my time is at a premium. For soon the world will see me a maternal bride to be. And I thought, no, no, uh, that's not it. Uh, that really made me sad <laughs> that she ruined that. Um, what else? Oh, oh and one song is cut entirely from this show. Uh, and you may not notice it because it's not on the original Broadway cast album. It is on the revival cast album mm -hmm. with Jessica Parker. And it's called The Minstrel, The Jester, and I. But since they have cut the role of the minstrel, basically, uh, I, I think I suppose that's the main reason why they cut the song. And it it it's not part of the plot. It's just a really fun, delightful little divertissement. But they cut it anyway. Um, at the uh, our friend Steve Bell was at the show, and he and I were commiserating <laughs> during. Um, intermission and also uh after the show and he noted that uh, at the end well i don't know if this is a spoiler but at the end of the of the show um the king who had been silent throughout says uh someone says the king look look the king talks and he says and i've got a lot to say uh but he said that line during the applause so a lot of people oh. didn't hear it Yes, ruining that wonderful joke. Which always and, gets applause. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and they had also they had already done this was the Saturday matinee performance, so that means they had already done two performances of Mattress here at City Center. So I don't know why um, why uh, David Patrick Kelly didn't know to wait for that. Uh, but anyway, so he said that line under the applause, and nobody heard it. And then he followed it up with a really silly line uh, that. I guess Amy Sherman Palladino wrote. He said, and I've got a lot to say, starting with the history of golf. My God. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's like, no, no, you're really supposed to be just, you know, you have a lot to say about uh, how your wife oh has God. kept you silent for 30 yeah. years and you've got a lot to yeah. say to your wife. So um, all of that said, the cast of this show was so phenomenal that you're not going to care about anything I just said negative. <laughs> Um, everyone is is just great. Uh, if if you know these performers and hear the roles they're playing, you probably would expect them to be great. But that doesn't always happen, now does it? But here it did. We have Nikki Renee Daniels as Lady Larkin, Sutton Foster as Princess Winifred, 
J. Harrison Gee as the jester, Harriet Harris as Queen Agravain, uh, who, by the way, seems to keep going back and forth uh, by listing her name as Harriet Harris and Harriet Sanson Harris. Um, so I'm not sure. Maybe it's a maybe it's a SAG thing. Maybe when she does TV and film, she has uh, to add the uh, Sanson. Uh, yeah. Uh. Anyway, whatever her name is, she is one of our greatest performers. <laughs> and she's absolutely beyond hysterical in this. Cheyenne Jackson, who we don't see that often anymore, uh, in back in fine form as Sir Harry, a role that might have been written for him. Uh, David Patrick Kelly, as I mentioned, King Sestimus, The Silent, and Michael Yori. Fresh from Spamalot as Prince Dauntless. He and Sutton were such an amazing musical comedy couple. I don't think I've ever seen a better one. Um, this show was so sold out that I went, um, uh, I mentioned to James before, I, I'm, I got press tickets for next Saturday, but I had a friend who was going to uh, yesterday, uh, uh, yesterday matinee, and I thought I might want to see it with them because I wouldn't mind seeing the show twice. And I figured, oh, I'll waltz up to the box office and they'll have a ticket, you know, the, the, the balcony never sells out at city center. And well, I said, um, I said, I, I, I'd like one, I'd like a single in either the mezzanine or the balcony. And he said, no balcony. He said, um, mezzanine 178 or 88. I said, there's not a single seat left in the balcony. He said, no. I said, okay, <laughs> I guess I'll take the ADA teller mezzanine seat. And it was a great seat. Um, so uh, I would be very surprised if this show does not move to Broadway, is oh. my point. Is my oh. point. Yeah. Oh. Really? Yeah. yeah. Are you both surprised? Yeah. Uh, just from the vantage point that certainly Sutton Foster has signed on to do Sweeney Todd. Oh, yeah. But for how long? I don't know. I mean, it would be after that. I I, I I don't mean I don't mean immediately. I see. You know, like yeah, maybe I, uh, yeah, maybe next yeah, I, fall. I, I don't see Sutton as as uh, would want to commit so much time to doing a revival. But I, mm. I mean, I could be totally wrong. I mean, mm. and I don't mm. think it would move without Sutton. No, I think she would commit to do this revival in which she is perfectly cast and uh -huh. giving a brilliant performance and is almost sure to win another Tony Award. <laughs> wow. Okay. Good. That's a bold prediction by Michael Portanto. <laughs> yes. Right here. When I do it, I do it. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Peter, is this in the cards for you? Are you going to see it next week? No, no, I didn't make uh, any arrangements uh, for it, so uh, I just have to uh, be one of the millions of people who are going to have to hear opinions on it. But uh, well, you'll see it on Broadway then. That's right. Um, I uh, I certainly have uh, heard so many wonderful opinions about it, so I'm delighted that it turned out to be such a success. Um, yeah, by the way, in terms of that show originally moving um, way back in 1959-60 season. It moved so many times that the trucking company actually gave the production an award because it gave them so much business. <laughs> um, and um, because they were they were thrown out um, to, uh, first from the Alvin um, where Green Willow was coming in. And then um, 
So the St. James, they had to wait until Flower Drum Song closed, which is why they went to the court uh, for 12 days. But um, the actors were so um, discouraged about all this movement. Um, they they picketed at one point, carrying signs saying, a house, a house, my kingdom for a house. <laughs> so uh, so that's kind of uh, some nice background on, on the show. Uh, I'm amazed that so many people have said along the way, um, this is a, a a B show. It's not an A show. I think it's an A show. And yep. certainly uh, a lot of people must have tremendous feelings for it because it has had over 25,000 productions in stock, <laughs> amateur, high school, middle school, what have you. It gets done a lot and continues to get done. So I bet a number of people in that audience went out of nostalgia remembering when they were playing these roles in middle school, high school, or community theater. <laughs> So I think that's part of the allure of it. And I think its reputation is very well deserved. And um, I'm delighted that uh, a lot of people are getting to experience it either for the first time, but I'll bet not for the first time at all. As Michael mentioned, uh, three uh, TV productions, really, how many musicals get that many? Um, hard. <laughs> really? You know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, Peter Pan, I guess, maybe, I don't know, did that get three? Um, <clears throat> I'm never sure about the, um, if it was rebroadcast or it was, uh, I know there were two, at least two, but there may have been three. But aside from that, I don't think there's ever been any other one that's received three TV productions. I, I'm, I'm not saying I'm right about this, but um, but uh, anyway, it uh, it's always been with us. And I, while thinking about it, I have to say that that 1959-60 season may have been the best lineup of Tony-nominated um, musicals because you had Sound of Music and Fiorello, which tied. The only time we've had a best musical tie. But Gypsy was in there, too, which I'm sure finished third at the very worst. And Mattress and Take Me Along, which which has a magnificent score. And really, you have to go far and wide to find five shows as good as that mm. um, in the same season, uh, nominated for Tonys. So uh, so really, um, I'm sure Gypsy finished third, but I'm sure Mattress finished fourth. And as I always say, in politics, we get to find out exactly how many votes everybody got. I'd love to see that for the Tony <laughs> Awards, too. So... Well, I totally agree with you about how beloved Mattress is. And I was thinking one reason is that it has a combination that you re rarely find. It is so, so funny, mm. but it has so much heart in it. Mm -hmm. And also uh, uh, two or three songs that are so gorgeous mm -hmm. um, that you could just take them and put them into a romantic you know, love story musical, and and uh, they're just beautiful songs. And they those songs are "Yesterday I Loved You," "Normandy," and um, I think there's one or two others. But those two alone, I mean, Mary Rogers, she really got the gene uh, <laughs> <laughs> from yeah, case, from her uh, dad. Yeah, yeah, whose name was Richard, right? Yeah. Um, the other thing, uh, as you mentioned, Marshall Barrow, what a lyricist! Yeah, I mean, there's there's a marvelous moment. The the, the point of um, Dauntless getting married is very important because, as you uh, implied, um, if he doesn't get married, nobody in the kingdom can get married. It's a strange law, I'll grant you, but nevertheless. That's the rule. And so everybody's singing about how they have an opening for a princess. Mm -hmm. And there's a wonderful moment where um, 
the the chorus sings uh, because <laughs> nobody's getting any. And you think, my God, this is a ribald lyric for a show <laughs> like this. Um, nobody's getting any. Uh, but then you, what you hear is the next word. Nobody's getting any younger. So we have the dirty binds, you know, for thinking that they're talking about sex. So that's just one example of many that is happily ever after. Good Lord, the rhymes in that are, are mm. just sensational. So, um, yes, I, I, I do have to say that um, whenever the word words Marshall and Bear are mentioned, one often hears the word crazy. Um, and yeah. Mary Rogers told me that herself. Um, yeah. Of course, Marshall is crazy. Um, and uh, we hear that all the time. And it's really too bad um, because, of course, his his brilliance really does show in this show. Yeah. And I, I was going to say uh, this this may be an obvious statement, but a lot of geniuses come across as crazy. Mm and uh have volatile behavior uh as we, we may remember marshall barrer was barred from rehearsals of the revival of once mm-hmm. upon a mattress mm-hmm. this out uh, jessica parker one mm-hmm. uh because he was so unhappy with how it was going but then when it turned out the way it did maybe everyone looked at it and said oh well no wonder he was happy, you know. Uh, on, a, on a more personal uh, level, um, Marshall Barrett told me that he was engaged to Mary Rogers, and indeed Richard was having none of it and forbade the marriage. Oh. Uh, when I asked Mary about it, she said, no, no, we were never quite engaged. Yes, we, we did oh. <laughs> pal around, but it never got to that point. So somebody's telling the truth, and um, I can't say who is. Michael, uh, do you think Arthur Lawrence was a genius? Not quite at, at that level, but you know, very very talented. I mean, it's not it's not. Uh, I mean, it's not a rule of thumb that it's not a rule of thumb that every genius is crazy and, and nasty, and, you know, yeah, or that everyone who's not is uh, nice That's and sweet. It, uh, you know? Causation is not correlation, <laughs> right? Thank you. That's what I was trying to say. <laughs> All right. So uh, one thing that's interesting to me about this season at Encores is that, you know, if uh, Once Upon a Mattress was going to make the leap, next up at Encores is Jelly's Last Jam, which has been long rumored for a Broadway revival. And then finally, it finishes up with Titanic is the last in the three uh, shows uh, at Encores this year, which everybody talks about as a possible transfer to Broadway all the time. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, could be the season where all three encore shows yeah. Yeah, were, were to move. Wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't it? Yeah. That would certainly yeah. be good for their endowment. Can you imagine that? Mm. Can you imagine that? Yeah. <laughs> all right. So, uh, Jelly's Last Jam's coming up on February 21st and Titanic on June 1st. So get your tickets now if they can be got. Uh, Once Upon a Mattress has one more weekend next weekend at Encores. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. So next up, Peter, you headed to uh, off the island of Manhattan, a little bit south <laughs> because of uh, the weather in Brooklyn, maybe. <laughs> You headed to the Brooklyn Academy of Music where you saw a production of Our Class. So tell us about this uh, this long play. 
It is long. It's three hours long. Uh, it doesn't quite feel it to me. Um, it's it's a play with many, many highs and a few longers. Uh, you might say, well, of course, three hours, how could it not? But um, it uh, it is the winner of the Nike Award. Who knew there was such a thing? But there is a <laughs> Polish Literary Award, and this is a Polish play written by Thaddeus, and I'm going to spell the last name because I wouldn't begin to know how to pronounce it. <laughs> S-L-O-B-O-D-Z-I-A-N-E-K. So um, so it, it takes place during the um, difficult period of time uh, of the Poland 1941. Need I say more about why it's a difficult time? And it's about uh, 10 classmates uh, who like playing soccer, and everybody gets along very well, even though five are Jewish and five are Catholics. And, you know, they're, they're good friends. But of course, what's going to happen is that uh, the war and um, all that goes with that is going to turn them against each other, I'm sorry to say, in many situations. So, um, <clears throat> it um, obviously, it has a cast <laughs> of <laughs> uh, 10, um, and um, boy, they... They really have to do so much work during this period of this play, not just because it's a long play, but boy, it really is a workout. They're all over the place here, there, and everywhere. And I have to say that the direction uh, by Igor Goliak is phenomenal. I can't imagine anybody doing any play this three hours to begin with, but this is all over the place with very fluid staging, tremendously entertaining to watch and impressive and gasp-inducing. The direction is so great as uh, these people are all over the place. By the way, when you come in, you know already who is going to survive and who is not. Because there's the set is basically just a big blackboard, um, stage filling blackboard. And before the show starts, there's a person up there putting names on the blackboard with birth dates, years and death dates. So they make it very clear from the start who's going to survive and who isn't. And you may say, well, that gives so much away. But frankly, when you know that you're dealing with Jews during this period of time, that it's going to be uh, a situation that death is going to come sooner to them than to the other people who many of them lived into, the, based on true story, by the way, many of them lived into the uh, 90s and beyond. So uh, Richard Topol, who's always, uh, always a marvelous actor and certainly uh, showed that in the off-Broadway prayer for the French Republic. Um, terrific here. But the real standout is Alexandra Silber. Uh, and one of the reasons is that the part is so engaging. Here she is, a Jewish woman, and um, a, a soldier falls in love with her, but she's Jewish. And he's, and essentially what it comes down to, convert to Catholicism or you're going to die. Well, she decides to convert. And there's a fascinating scene where indeed she is being quizzed about the Ten Commandments. And they're asking her, okay, so what's commandment number four, four, whatever the number is, and she gets it wrong. And they say, no, the answer is thou shalt not kill. Well, we have seen these people do atrocious things to people. And, you know, <laughs> we learn that they know the letter of the, mm. <laughs> of the Ten Commandments, mm. but they don't follow the ten, that commandment. I mean, it's just, it's gasp inducing again uh, to use that expression because it really is incredible to watch that happen. That this poor victimized woman is being taught thou shalt not kill by killers. 
So that is just one example of many. Now, indeed, there are times when you get a little tired, a little bored, and the writing isn't up to that level. That's the problem when you have something brilliant. You you expect the brilliance is going to continue. It doesn't always. And yet, I certainly recommend this uh, not only for Alexandra Silber, for that, for that scene, uh, which I guess I've spoiled already, but... but <laughs> The direction it, it, to watch that this cast do so many things in so many places in so many ways really makes this um, a, a tremendous achievement. And I'm hoping that uh, at awards time, this uh, show will be remembered because, after all, um, it's it's only there for a month. Um, it's about to end. It ends on February 11th. And uh, it is in Brooklyn. And uh, we, we have a tendency to forget about um shows in Brooklyn because they're far away and we're more concentrated in the in Manhattan. So but anyway, Norman Allen's adaptation of this play uh is is an achievement as well, even when there are longers. But um but all things considered, I am delighted to have gone and um I I, I can't recall a three hour play that seemed less like three hours than this one. A friend of mine who attended said the same thing, Peter. Did he? Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Good. Mm. <laughs> it's always nice to be agreed with. <laughs> it's it's very tough because, uh, as uh, we will talk about later into uh, the season, uh, this season is packed, packed full. So it's probably unlikely without, you know, some huge Hollywood names that – this would transfer very quickly, but it could transfer in the in the future. Uh, Alexandra Silber is a mainstay here on Broadway Radio. She's visited with us a number of times, uh, uh, and Matt Temanini's got a great interview with her when she talks about her book a- after Anna Tefka that she wrote. Mm. Uh, so I'll put a link to those uh, interviews on Broadway Radio with Al Silber. Uh, in the show notes, so you can get back and take a listen to that. Uh, Michael, you went back and visited with uh, your good friend Sweeney Todd. Uh, My good friend Sweeney. Your good friend Sweeney Todd. And uh, uh, did you see Nick Christopher and Jenna DeWall, or who did you I see? I did, I did. Okay, I, so I, tell as us I've, about this. Well, as I've said many times in the past, Sweeney Todd is one of my top, top, top favorite creations of all time i think it's just an absolute masterpiece and so um i was certainly not going to limit my viewing of this production to one performance uh and now that the cast has changed i thought it was a good time to go back um just to see new people but also because it's so much cheaper now (laughs) uh that josh groban uh who's a box office phenomenon has left the show uh and i had heard from everyone who saw him that nicholas christopher in the role of sweeney todd is amazing and they were right uh he has a wonderfully uh, malleable versatile powerful voice uh but that he can also uh reduce to a just a beautiful pianissimo when he needs to do it uh he's uh completely alive to the lyrics and 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 the acting in every single moment um energy wise he uh will give people a lot more of the the menace 
and the terror in the character that many people felt um, was not present or were not present in Josh Groban's performance. Uh, he he still uh, he plays Sweeney as quite contained and restrained uh, through most of the first act, which I really think is is the way the only way to do it. But when he got to the epiphany. <laughs> Uh, he was all over the stage, and he you'd really felt like he was losing his mind. And um, it's a brilliant performance. I can't say enough about it. Just try to get to see him if you can. And Jenna DeWall, who uh, Gianna DeWall, I'm not sure how exactly it's pronounced, um, J-E-A-N-N-A DeWall, W-A-A-L. Um, my only really previous experience of her was in Diana the musical the short-lived diana the musical mm-hmm. but she was terrific as mrs lovett uh vocally acting wise and and one thing i have to say i, I very very much enjoyed annalee ashford but her brit cockney accent was not quite there <laughs> uh here uh to my ears uh jenna dewall does it perfectly i um i haven't delved into her background to see if she is has spent a lot of time in England or is part British. Um, but it's, she sounds like she is. Um, and that really made a big difference. Uh, Nick Christopher too, who is not British also did a, a light Brit accent, which I appreciated. And, and the two of them together really added, um, you know, the fact that they both did that, I, I think it really added to the story and, and um, gave a little bit, more of a tinge of authenticity. Um, I saw an understudy as Anthony, um, and I have to say uh, that vocally, I didn't think he was quite up to it, but neither was Jordan Fisher, <laughs> who um, created that role in this production, this revival. Uh, it seems to me um, that some directors and musical directors are uncomfortable in casting people with legit voices uh in in some roles especially if they're men it seems like the legit male tenor voice or baritone voice um uh tenor especially if you're you're casting a young lover it seems like they don't want them to sing in anything like a legit tone because they think that sounds silly or weird or old-fashioned and that annoys me uh because this fellow just was crooning the the role and it just really wasn't correct so that was a negative um but on the positive side back to the positive side ruthie ann miles is still very much Mm. present as the beggar woman and giving even more of a compelling performance than before if possible um judge turpin uh still jamie jackson he was fantastic john rapson i i thought was overacting a little bit and not singing all that well as beetle bamford um but raymond j lee uh went on as pirelli in this production and he just had the audience in the palm of his hand he he was so funny and his high notes were ringing throughout the orchestra uh, and the mezzanine and the balcony. Um, he, uh, I've seen him in, in little roles before. Uh, I'm glad he got this showcase to, uh, to to demonstrate how really, really great he is as a comedian and as a singer. 
just r- something really, really special. And for last, I have saved uh, Daniel Marconi uh, in the role of Tobias. I know him slightly. I've met him uh, once or twice through mutual friends. And Daniel's story is, uh, well, part of his story is he was to be in the musical of The Outsiders. And he was in the production uh, that played out of town. Was it La Jolla? Is that right? Sounds right. Yeah. Uh, wherever it was, he was in it. Uh, but then he um, he's not coming to Broadway with it because they wrote out his role. Uh, the, the role itself has completely been written out of that show. Uh, I'm So I don't know what was going on with that. Um, so, of course, that must have been a tremendous disappointment. But as I said to him <laughs> when I saw him after uh, Sweeney Todd the other night, I said, well, I, this is a nice consolation prize, isn't it? Uh, because I think Tobias is a wonderful, wonderful role uh, with that incredibly beautiful song, Not While I'm Around, and lots of other uh, great stuff to do in terms of both acting and singing. And he, um, there again, uh, I'm, I'm no linguist expert, but his Cockney accent sounded absolutely perfect uh, to me. And he's not a Brit either. He even did that thing. Um, I, I was listening. He did that thing where they say actually an F sound in, in the place of TH. Um, there's that uh, actually a title of a, a British show that's called Things Ain't What They Ought To Be. <laughs> uh, and he did that. And I, and I said, yeah, you know, I noticed you did that. That was really great. Um, so he's terrific. He's only in it um, limited time. A lot of people who are doing the show now are sort of doing it on an interim basis before Aaron Tveit and Sutton Foster, the aforementioned Sutton Foster, start uh, as Sweeney and Mrs. Lovett, and then some other cast uh New cast members are coming in as well, uh, but I'm really glad that I saw Sweeney last week at a at a very reasonable ticket price with um, all of these wonderful, wonderful people doing those amazing roles. So uh, Rob Johnson says it's like a Gina, G E E N A. Oh, is it sounding, Gina? It's something okay. like that. That's what Rob says, and yeah. uh, I would take Rob's. Me too. Uh, knowledge base over you bet over mine. <laughs> uh, he also points out that she was born in Germany and raised in England. Ah, uh, well, there you so, go. Yeah. So see, you're, I didn't do that research. You're, uh, you're Henry Higgins. <laughs> <laughs> Placement of the accent is uh, is is very is very good, Michael. So uh, Sweeney still running, and then as soon as. Uh, as soon as Once Upon a Mattress wraps up, uh, we're going to change casts again and with uh, Sutton in the role, and then we'll see what happens there. All right. So uh, last review of the morning, uh, Michael and Peter got over to Theater Road to see White Rose the Musicals. So, Peter, why don't you get us started on that? Well, um this is uh, another story that's uh, second cousin to our class because it also deals with that difficult period of history. But we're in Munich, Germany now, and uh, Sophie Scholl arrives in town and um, looking very much like Millie in Thoroughly Modern Millie because she's got the suitcase and uh, all <laughs> that. And she's certainly there to seek her fortune, but she gets very involved in political issues. However, 
Let me point out that it starts with will turn out to be a framing device. She's on a balcony with uh, somebody we don't know, and uh, well, we don't know her either, for that matter. But anyway, um, both of them are speaking about wow. In just one year, look what's look what's happened. Isn't it amazing? And given that the projection soon tells us that we're in 1942. Um, and uh, 1943, um, that's the year later, it's a little surprising because there they are essentially so proud of what they did in a year. Or He, may, he gives her more credit, uh, to be fair, and as we will see, she deserves more credit. But you're thinking, well, 1943, the war is still raging. What what really has been accomplished here in that period of time? What did she do? And I have to say, when the framing device comes back, not quite at the end, mm. I think it's a very effective um, situation. I'm not going to say any more than that. But anyway, here we are with a situation where, um, yes, uh, Sophie is appalled at what is happening to uh, the people who do, certainly don't deserve this fate. And she falls in with a group of people, uh, one of whom is her brother for that matter. And, um, and they're going to fight this, and um, they're going to call themselves the White Rose because White Rose is something that uh, a, a Munich townsperson gave Sophie when she was asking for directions. So we we certainly see the atrocities here. I mean, there's a shop owner, a, a, a Nazi guy comes in and uh, sees a printing press and certainly has a million problems already because there's a printing press. And you, in this society, you are guilty till proved innocent. And uh, what are you doing with that printing? Are you printing flyers that are, are going to be uh, problematic? In fact, that will happen as the show continues. So I think the book is pretty good. But, of course, I'm going to have a problem with the music because the music is essentially a pop rock score. And um, just as I always say, if you saw a production of Camelot where King Arthur looked at his Rolex to find out what time it is, you would <laughs> you would take issue with that. I take issue with music that's anachronistic. It occurred to me that given the fact that there was a, a concerted effort here, I can't believe it was... Um, uh, coincidental, Brian Belding, the book and lyric writer, uh, a concerted effort to point out the fact that a lot of what's going on there in that period of time is going on here at this moment in time. There are a lot of pieces of dialogue that make you think of the here and now. So what I would like to see happen is to, for this show, with its rock music and a drummer who just loves that bass drum and loves hitting that, um, boy, there's a lot of punctuation with bass notes. Um, what I would like to see happen is to actually make this a contemporary show in a mythical kingdom and let the um, parallels speak for themselves that way. If you're going to do a rock score, okay, do it in the here and now. Now, needless to say, Spring Awakening didn't suffer for this. Well, I think it did, actually. I think it would have run longer if, indeed, it had been contemporized or if the music were of its 1890s Germany period. But but the thing is that um, doing it in a, in a kingdom, um, in a democracy, uh, I should say, um, uh, that doesn't really exist, a, a mythical, fictional kingdom, we would get the parallels and uh, the music would fit in very, very nicely. But... Um, I, I do believe that it's uh, a pretty good book 
in um, surrounded by a score that um, makes it uh, problematic for me. Mm. Okay, Michael, what did you think? That's an interesting suggestion about doing it in uh, contemporary times in a, in a mythical place. Um, I think I've said before, I, I don't really agree with you on Spring Awakening because mm-hmm. I think I think that's brilliantly done. I think it's so obviously set up that well, we're supposed to be in uh, in Germany in uh, eighteen ninety, yeah, uh, like but and and all of the book uh, lines conform to that. But then whenever they start singing. Mm. It it's very modern and uh, and and I think that's how they chose to a very stylized way to show. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but here, um, we we don't get any impression that when they start singing that it that it, you know, it's supposed to be like on another stylistic level, and we're not supposed to think it's realistic. Uh, that that doesn't happen at all. It's it's just that they use very, very modern sounding music and not very good music at all um, to, to, to to for these songs to tell the story. I um, the quality of the the music itself, aside from the fact that it doesn't fit the period and it's stylistically inappropriate, I just thought it was extremely derivative and very simplistic, and the lyrics were just very, very on the nose and clunky. Um, and I, I mean, my main comment was, as as I said before, if somebody writes a um, a bad musical about a picnic, you know, uh, it may be it may be really badly written, really badly written, but it's about a picnic, uh, you know, so it's not going to um bother you or offend you in any way like that but if you write a really bad musical about the third reich and the nazis and the holocaust um it doesn't get into specifics of the holocaust but of course we know it's coming um uh, that can come across as extremely offensive and annoying uh and that's how I felt about it. So I, I really, really was not happy. Also, on that note, and I don't know if this is going to be a controversial statement, but um, you have at one point, uh, at least at one point, you have a, a Nazi officer on stage in full uniform with the armband, with the swastika, the hat, et cetera, et cetera. And this character is played by a black performer and i guess i don't quite understand what that what we're supposed to take from that uh i i suppose they would say it's colorblind casting Mm -hmm. uh but you know when you think of all of the resonance of that and what actually would have happened to a black person i mean i don't even know how many black people there were in Germany at that time. I I have not done that research either. But however many there were, uh, I I think that the way that they would have been treated would probably have been in some other way than to make them an officer of the Third Reich. Uh, So I I didn't get that. Um, One interesting part of this story is that all of these these young people who are uh, the publishing this would you call it a newspaper or a newsletter uh uh some some kind of pamphlets uh pamphlets, what, yeah. yeah yeah um just really really 
really, really critical of the Nazis. All of these people we see, uh, we we are told that none of them are Jews. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's uh, maybe something that makes it a little different from other similar stories. Uh, and there is one uh, one character um, who does turn out to be a Jew, but we don't know that at the beginning. And I thought that was one of the best parts of this show. Uh, just the way that character was written and handled and also played. Um, but my overall feeling was, was quite negative. Okay. So white Rose, the musical is at theater row. It's playing through March 31st, 2024. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. So that wraps it up for today. Before we get on to the brain teaser and the musical moments, I'd like to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com, where there is a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. as many ways to get us. One way is Patreon. Patreon is P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Broadway Radio. And if you subscribe there, you will be able to support all of Broadway Radio's shows, Plus, get our uh, episodes a little bit earlier than everybody else. Uh, contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found on the show notes at BroadwayRadio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's brain teaser? What lyric from a title song in a Michael Bennett, Tony Losing musical ceased to tell the truth on a certain August 12th? Well, Bennett's Dream Girls, which lost the Tony to nine, closed on August 11th, 1985, thus making the lyric Dream Girls Will Never Leave You from the title <laughs> song inaccurate on August 12th. Paul Whitty was the first to get it, followed by Joss Israel, Sean Logan, Tony Janicki, and Brigadude. This week's question. Although many characters in Me and Juliet may have attended a play that had been written in the 16th century, and they're in show business after all. There are characters in another Rogers and Hammerstein musical that we can say for sure saw one from the 16th century. Who, what play, what musical? Okay, if you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So, Michael, what do we have in this week's musical moments? Well, Daniel Marconi's beautiful performance of Not While I'm Around in Sweeney Todd uh, made me think about other recordings of that show and that song. And I started to think about Barbara Streisand's beautiful recording for her Broadway album, which was released in 1985 and just really was um, a watershed, I think, Uh for her returning to that kind of material and recording so many wonderful songs by so many Broadway greats, including several by Sondheim. Uh, So our opener for today was Something's Coming from West Side Story, as recorded by Barbara Streisand for that album. And the closer is her really lovely, heartfelt performance of Not While I'm Around from Sweeney Todd. All right. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Being close and being clever ain't like being true. I don't need 
would never hide a thing from you like so. Others can desert you, not to worry, whistle out. 